Great. I'm going to start with a quotation and uh, first of all, see if you can guess what he's talking about. Ready? There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular, and no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves. And the more we have of it in ourselves, the more we disdain it in others. <laughs> the vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride unchastity, sexual immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison with pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So wrote C.S. Lewis, uh, Oxford Don and uh, Christian author, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, it was published sometime in the 1940s. Lewis calls pride the great sin, the great sin. He argues that not only is pride the biggest sin in our lives, it is also the cause of many other sins. Do you believe that? Now just think about anger for a moment, one of my favorite sins. When was the last time you were really angry with someone, furious? Maybe there is someone you're angry with right now. But just think about it for a moment. You couldn't be that angry with them unless you felt superior. You're looking down on them because you think you would never behave as they have done. How dare they? If you actually saw these, this person as essentially just like you, the anger would quickly fade away but it is fed and nurtured by superiority. And the reason you feel superior is you're proud. Now over the summer we've been studying the book of Proverbs. We're on a quest together, the search for wisdom, which we need if we're going to live well in God's world. We all want to live well, we want good lives. And therefore the Bible says we need wisdom and we have to learn it. Because as you go through life, you find that life is rarely black and white. It's rarely simple, it's rarely cut and dried and straightforward. Life is made up of countless situations, countless decisions that are not clear cut. There is no rule book for most of the things that are gonna to happen to you this week. And so if we're going to live well, we need wisdom. And Proverbs is like the Bible's goldmine of wisdom. This is the place you go to become a profound person. You could mine it, you could dig for gold in Proverbs for the rest of your life and never exhaust it. And over the summer we've looked at Proverbs wisdom for friendship, for words and speech, for listening, for emotions and for work. And some of us have found this transformative. Some of you have told me that. But today we're gonna to dig really deep and we need to go right down to the roots of character because there is one thing 
that wrecks friendships. There's one thing that spoils our words. There's one thing that makes us unable to listen and receive advice. There's one thing that stirs up and boils our emotions. And there's one thing that really ruins work. It's pride, the great sin. Now, the Bible gives serious warnings about the danger of pride. Will you look at your sheet with me, please, on the left-hand side? Uh, Chapter 16, verse 5 of Proverbs says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. You see what this is saying? God doesn't just dislike the proud of heart. He detests them. Pride makes us stink in God's nostrils. And it will certainly lead us to divine punishment, it says here. They will not go unpunished. Now, ultimately, pride has devastating consequences in our lives because God hates it and he rejects the proud. Why does he hate it so much? What has God got against pride? Because pride goes against the grain of everything that God is. Just think about our God revealed in the Bible. Within this one marvelous being of the triune God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, loving and glorifying one another through all eternity. These three, the Father, Son, and Spirit, have been in an eternal dance of love, self-giving, glorifying the other throughout all eternity. That's who God is. Therefore, if we are proud and we are committed to self-glory, we are going against the very nature of God, the heart of reality. And I wouldn't want to be on a collision course with Almighty God, would you? And yet we do. The next proverb says this, chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This has even entered the the English language uh, with the old proverb, pride cometh before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. Now, it doesn't say here that pride might lead to destruction. It says it will. And the Hebrew language behind the word here that we translate destruction is a very powerful word. It means to break or, or be broken. It is used of shattered clay pottery, broken or fractured bones, doors that have been kicked in and smashed, ships that go off course, hit the rocks and are wrecked. It means to be broken, to be shattered, to be wrecked. That's what pride leads to. Pride goes before destruction. It leads to pain. In other words, friends, what we're looking at today, this isn't a game here. We're not just playing at church. This is deadly serious. Please listen. Do you see that? It goes before destruction. You want to avoid that. So can you listen? Because this could save your life. But we do have a problem now, which is this. The Bible never gives us a single neat definition of pride anywhere. You can't look up a key verse somewhere that says, this is how we know what pride is. You can do that for love, by the way. The Bible says God is love. It says this is how we know what love is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've got a nice, tidy definition of love. We don't have one of pride. So we're going to have to do some digging. And that's what uh, we're going to do today. So sleeves are rolled up. 
We're going to dig into God's word. And I've got three points. You can see them on your handout. What pride does, what pride is, and what to do about it. What pride does, what pride is, and what to do about it. Firstly, what pride does. We're just looking here at the evidence, seven things that pride does. The first four of them are actually in one uh, chunk there from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Pride makes us turn on other people, even on our parents, and curse them, speak badly of them, disrespect them. This person here won't even give a blessing to their mum. Why would we act like this? Because pride makes us hate authority. Some people violently resist any kind of authority over them. School teachers, police, traffic laws, traffic cameras, the boss, the management, the government, the council. But this spirit of anti-authority is seen most clearly in their resistance to their parents, who are the first authority figures in our lives. So let me ask a question. What is your relationship with authority? Especially when it places limits on your freedom. Now, I'm not talking about authority that's abusive or coercive or wrong. I'm talking about good, law-abiding, God-ordained authority that's given to, to, to set limits in human society. What is your relationship to authority? And don't just brush it up and say, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s. <laughs> what is your relationship with authority? Pride can't handle it. Verse 12, next one. Those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Now this is a, actually a disgusting image. A more literal translation from the scholar Tremper Longman is this. There is a type of person who is clean in their own eyes, but they have not cleaned off their own excrement. Ew. <laughs> That's what it says. Pride stinks. It stinks and you don't realize it. What does it mean? Pride blinds us to our own flaws. We are unable to see what we're really like. It's distorting. Some time ago I was watching TV with my two younger sons and they got obsessed with a program called The Dragon's Den. Now in this pro TV show, there are a bunch of venture capitalists who have made their millions, and they're looking for, for good ideas and good companies to invest in. And so the premise of the program is that they, they are the dragons, but you have to go into their den and pitch an idea that they might want to, to, to buy into and sponsor. And sometimes they, they, they agree with it and they give you know, a million dollars or whatever, and they help someone get started. It's, it's a really fun TV show. Now, the one that I watched is a young woman entrepreneur who was seeking funding for a new product that she developed and this product was a mirror and it didn't look particularly special but the clever thing about this mirror was that it was distorting and it made everyone look slimmer than they really were and her business proposal was this this mirror will make women buy more clothes because they'll go into the shop put the clothes on look in the mirror and think wow I look really good in this she reckoned she could sell thousands of these mirrors to shops all over the USA. Now, the judges kicked it around. They quite liked it in some ways. In the end, they didn't fund it 
for this reason, that they said when people got home and looked in the real mirror, they would be really cross and would take the clothes back, and that the shop could be sued for misrepresentation. But the interesting thing was, even though she didn't get the funding, the only female judge on the panel asked if she could buy one. <coughs> now, pride is like one of those mirrors. It gives you a distorted view of who you are, a distorted sense of what you're really like. It bends your self-awareness out of shape. Then when you do see yourself, all of a sudden, it's a horrible shock. They're pure in their own eyes, and yet they're not cleansed of their filth. Am I really like that? Thirdly, verse 13, those whose eyes are ever so haughty and their glances are so disdainful. Pride makes us haughty and disdainful. Literally, it says that the proud person's eyes, their pupils are lifted up. They're kind of looking down on everyone. Yeah. Now, they don't even look a person in the eye and see them as an equal who needs to be understood and listened to. They're always looking past you or always looking through you to, because of their own ambition. Proud, a really proud person is not really listening to you because a proud person sees other people as a means to an end. This makes empathy impossible. You can't recognize when someone else is hurt or unhappy or struggling and put yourself in their place because you are just too self-absorbed. Fourthly, verse 14, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. What an extraordinary image. Somebody who opens their mouth and you don't just see their pearly whites or even the brace that they got put on at the orthodontist. You see teeth like swords and jaws set with knives. This means a person that uses their power of their speech to destroy other people. Their words cut, they wound, they kill. Pride can make our speech sharp and harsh and unforgiving, and it can make our heart ruthless and unjust. We sit in judgment on other people because we're proud, and then we cut them down to size with our harsh tongue. Now we either do it to their face and some people are really skilled at this, or more often we do it behind their back to somebody else. Now this verse emphasizes that we, pride makes us especially hard on those who are needy, those who need something. They've got less social power than you. And so pride makes you look down on them and despise them. Do you speak about people like that? The next verse is chapter 13, verse 10. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Now, by now, this shouldn't be too surprising to us, should it? Pride stirs up strife, arguments, disunity, fighting between people. How does it do this? Pride makes our speech arrogant, a little bit insulting, condescending, and indiscreet. We're too harsh with our tongues, and we're overly critical. And if you find yourself, by the way, constantly getting into arguments, stop and think. See how it might be pride that's getting you there. And if you constantly stir up strife, it's only a matter of time before you pick a fight with someone who can really hurt you. 
Now, the contrast to this is humble speech. A careful person, modest, thoughtful in their speech, rarely stirs up strife because they disarm conflict. They promote peace and careful civil dialogue. The next uh, verse is a really embarrassing image. Chapter 25, verse 6 and 7. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and don't claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. Reminds me of an embarrassing moment when I was in uh, the business world. I worked in central London in the West End for a very smart company that recruited talent for organizations, executive search headhunting. And one of our uh, partners was a, she's now a baroness, but she was a, certainly a very well-known member of British, uh, the British polit political establishment. And she was able to invite people of the great and the good from all over London, all over the country, to come to special lunches. And one, on one occasion, I was invited to a lunch meeting with some people somewhere in the building. But because I'd been a bit careless, I hadn't checked the, which room it was in. So I went herring off <clears throat> a little bit in the last minute up to the, to the eighth floor of the building to, to try and find the lunch. And I was peeking around <laughs> and looked around a door and saw some people sitting around the board table. And I thought, that must be it. So in I went. And before I'd even stepped one foot across the doorway, there the Baroness appeared and just very discreetly but very firmly said, no, no. This isn't for you. <laughs> Too junior for that lunch. And off I went and found the real one that I was invited to. Uh, don't exalt yourself in the king's presence and don't claim a place among the great ones. It's better to be for you, someone to say, you come and sit here, than to go and sit there and then be told, sorry, that's someone else's place and you get humiliated. Now, what's this really saying? Pride makes us immodest. It encourages us to self-promotion. Some people's pride leads them to overreach, to think that they're more important, they're more significant than they really are. They reinvent reality to make themselves seem really big and important in their own mind. But it is a fantasy and they're living in a dream world. And when reality bursts the bubble, which it always does, it is really painful for them. They melt down, they collapse in tears, or they explode with rage and an injured sense of victimhood. How dare you? But the problem lay within them the whole time. So let me ask you a question. Are you modest? Here are some symptoms. Do you exalt yourself in conversation? If you're speaking to someone, do you frequently interrupt, assuming that your insights are more profound and important than what anyone else has to say? Do you exalt yourself in your work? Are you very quick to take credit for what perhaps a team did or a bunch of people, but very slow to take the blame? Do you exalt yourself online? It's very easy to promote oneself these days through social media, presenting an image to the world that makes you look more glorious, more important, more beautiful than you really are perhaps using what some people have called fake book. Uh, lastly, what pride does is in verse 21, chapter 21, verse 24, uh, not surprisingly, it leads people to behave 
very presumptuously. It says, the proud and arrogant person, mocker is his name, behaves with insolent fury. Now, here it says, pride causes people to mock, to look at others and to make fun of them, tear them down a bit, have a sarcastic laugh, poke fun. That's because pride makes us play the comparison game all the time. See, because of our pride, we're always looking at the other person and thinking, am I better than them? Am I more intelligent than them? Am I more successful than them? Am I richer? Is my bum as big as that? We're always playing the comparison game. We're always checking to see if we're more successful or prettier than someone else. And then, when we think we are, we disdain our neighbour, and that is an, in, of the essence of pride. A mocker is someone who delights in pointing out the weaknesses of other people. Do you enjoy that? There's seven things that pride does. Now, we could have looked at many more, but now we have a picture of what it does to us. That's what pride does. Now, I wonder how you're feeling right now. <laughs> By the way, if you're sitting here and thinking of one or two other people who, who you really wish could have been here and heard this sermon, because you can see how it applies to them, be very afraid. You're really far gone. You're so vain. You probably think this sermon's about you. You're so vain. In fact, you are so vain the sermon is about you, because this is what pride does. So. What is it, point two? What is pride? Now, as I said earlier, the Bible doesn't give us a single neat definition of pride, uh, but it gives us loads and loads of data. And out of that, Christian thinkers and theologians over the years have tried to kind of um, distill it down and give an essence of what pride is. And one of the greatest thinkers in Christian theology was a fourth century African, a man called, who we call Saint Augustine. He was an African bishop. And Augustine defined pride as the human being who's a creature refusing to submit to God, refusing to admit our creatureliness and give God his position as the Almighty One. Augustine saw that pride was present at the fall of Satan when he tried to escape God's authority and go his own way. And pride was present in the fall of Adam and Eve who tried to escape God's authority by ruling themselves and believing the serpent's lie. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from the fruit? Well, maybe we should try it. You know, maybe God's cheating us. In other words, pride was the root sin that led to all the others. Now, what happens when you try to define yourself without letting God define you? Here's a quote from someone who summarizes what Augustine taught. Pride turns a person inward to find their purpose. It turns you inward. It makes you feed on yourself in the search for satisfaction. Pride folds the soul over onto itself, shrivels it, causes you to fade and then nearly disappear. Pride, Martin Luther said, curves us in on ourselves. Curved, we become curved in and we become smaller and smaller and smaller. And so there's one summary quote there from St. Augustine. Pride is the love of one's own excellence. A little bit closer to home is C.S. Lewis. We started this, this service sermon with a quote from him. 
And Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's an imaginary construction of a, 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 a set of letters from a senior devil who's writing to a junior devil whose job is to try and destroy a young Christian. And this uh, book has a brilliant definition of pride. It's there on your sheet. This is from the, the preface of the book. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell. The ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Now, these definitions, I think, get us to the heart of how pride works. It is the love of one's own excellence, and it is the total absorption with yourself. This is what pride is. It makes you concentrate on you. As a result, you don't have to do anything. You don't do anything unless it's for yourself. You don't do a job, have a relationship, serve in church, raise a child, spend money, unless it's all about you. Pride is all about me. So everything we do is a means to an end, to try and get respect to try and get people to approve of us, to be admired, to be adored. There's an endless ego calculation going all the time in our inner world. Am I getting enough recognition? Am I being thanked enough? How am I regarded? How am I looking today? What about me? That's the big question that pride makes us ask. What about me? Somebody else gets promoted, praised, applauded. What about me? I, I did it too. Over here. Ooh. Now, if these definitions are correct, or even if they're close to the truth, then pride can work its way out in two opposite ways. Listen, this is really scary. Two opposite ways that pride can work out. One is the obvious way through superiority. You think you're better than other people. Arrogance. That's a really obvious kind of pride. But the other way is really subtle. It's through inferiority. This is the person who's always going on about how unworthy they are. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm so rubbish. But what do those things both have in common? They are both absolutely focused on the self. what pride is. Listen, according to the Bible, we are all proud, right? We're all proud, according to the Bible. It's just that we don't see it, because pride has this amazing ability to go under the radar. It's odorless. But I wonder if it's been exposed today. I hope so. Let's conclude with the cure, shall we? What are we going to do about it? Three proverbs here, three key words. Respect, listen, and confess. Firstly, Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever scorns instruction will pay for it, but whoever respects a command is rewarded. Humility, a humble spirit, respects and reveres what God says to us in his word. It makes us stop in our tracks and think, oh dear, I've been going wrong all this time. But thank God I've now been told. Pride, on the other hand, despises what God says to us. So this verse is all about our attitude and our posture. When you open the Bible, or when somebody explains it to you, or brings something from the Bible and kind of shines some light in your heart, 
and you see what's really in there, will you revere it, respect it, and open yourself up to a new path, to new instruction? Secondly, listen. Chapter 15, verse 31. Whoever listens to a life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Now, according to Proverbs, the mark of a fool, a fool as a person who's headed to their own destruction, is that they are wise in their own eyes. They're wise in their own eyes. That means that they always think they know best and they can't possibly be wrong. And if anything does go wrong, they've always got an excuse or someone else to blame. And that means they can never learn from life or from other people or from the Bible. But they continue making one bad choice after another and life works out very painful. Such a person rarely listens. Why should they? They're already wise in their own eyes. But wisdom says, I need help. I need advice. I need correction. And I need other people to help me because I can't find it on my own because pride has blinded me. When was the last time you said to someone you trust, help me see myself? How can I improve? You know, if you're not in a relationship where you trust anyone enough to open up to them like that, there's a reason. Not that you can't find anyone good enough, but you're too proud for it. But the Bible gives us hope that we can change. Respect, listen. And the third word is in the, third, the final text on our, our handout confess whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy if we want to deal with our pride we've got to get into the habit of confession martin luther in his famous uh, document the 95 theses which he he nailed to a door of a church in wittenberg many years ago in in uh, east germany uh, Martin Luther's theses were, were to start a public debate, and the first one, which was, is often seen as kick-starting the Reformation 500 years ago, is this. All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. You see, you don't just start the Christian life by repenting, turning around, saying sorry for your sins, grieving over them and following God. You don't just, you don't just start by doing that, although you do. Repentance marks every step of the way thereafter. I first probably put my trust in Jesus in my mid-teens. I've been a Christian for over 35 years. And wow, do I need to repent every day. And not just every day, every hour. You think you're pretty good until you get married. My word, why do we get married? It shows you for who you really are. And then you think you're doing okay. And then a, a child comes along. My goodness me, how a baby reveals your sin. Some people go on and do it many times. Now, we don't like confessing because we want to save face. We want to look good. But it says here, if we want to flourish, we want to prosper. We mustn't conceal our sins, but confess them. We confess them in two directions. Firstly, we confess them to God. We confess our sins every day to him. But also, we should confess our sins to one another. Ouch. I was uh, put under the spotlight of God's word this week as I read all these verses about pride. I was talking to my wife, who's a woman of great insight and honesty. 
And she said, you know what? I realize you are a very proud person. <laughs> I had to confess it. But that's the beginning of recovery for a pride addicts like you and me. So if you want to start, I'm going to give you another a final reading from C.S. Lewis, who's very good on this subject. If anyone would like to acquire humility, he says, I can, I think, tell them the first step. Do you want to know the first step? The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. That's the first step. But that's not where it ends. And that's not where this sermon is going to end. Because we have someone else to look to. The one truly humble man who ever existed, the one truly humble human being, was the one who had everything to be proud about. He was the king of kings, the prince of glory. He took a journey from heaven to earth. And he didn't set up shop in a marble palace and surround himself with fawning courtiers and with opulence. He came and was born in a stable. There actually wasn't any room for him when he was born because he, his parents were poor and they arrived a bit too late. So his first bed was a trough that was used for feeding animals. He never owned very much. In fact, when it came to him to die at the humble age of 33, he only owned the clothes he was standing up in, a good quality robe that they cast lots for. And his life, his entire life was one of service to other people. He was truly humble. The Apostle Paul, when reflecting on Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, said these wonderful words, which are just immortal. I'm going to leave us with them as we go on our way today and seek to address our pride. Uh, he says, uh, your attitude should be that, like that of Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped for himself. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further down by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death. Therefore, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What new step of humility is God calling you to today to take as a follower of Jesus? Whatever it is, take it, and God will honor you as you take that step. After humility, there is great honor. Shall we pray?